Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Porter, and I am the course director for the AUA's upcoming hands-on urologic ultrasound skills training, which will be held on Saturday, September the 17th. I would like to invite you to register and join me and the faculty and your colleagues for this one-day training event, which will be held at the AUA headquarters just outside of Baltimore. We offer hands-on training shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with experts in urologic ultrasound, as well as lectures and panel discussions led by our world-class faculty. Only a few spots remain, so if you would like to join us, register by visiting AUA University. Thanks very much. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcasts with this specific podcast titled Surgical Management of Urolithiasis. It's really my pleasure uh, to have as our guest today, Dr. Marcelino Rivera. Dr. Rivera is Assistant Professor of Urology at the Indiana School of Medicine and he completed his uh, medical school training at the University of Illinois at Chicago, residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and thereafter completed his endourology fellowship at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Uh, he is the endourology fellowship program director and uh, co-director, and his uh, practice really uh, entails management of uh, complex urinary stone disease as well as benign prostatic hyperplasia, and uh, he is uh, both a nationally and internationally known uh, um, uh, expert in both of these fields, having uh, presented uh, in, in various different um, uh, settings on both of these different uh, topic areas. So uh, Marcelino, first of all, on a Friday afternoon, uh, thank you so much for taking some time and uh, joining. Re really appreciate uh, the time in advance. Sure thing. It's, it's really my, my pleasure. And, and thanks so much for in inviting me. This is um, really a great a great chance to talk about uh, kidney stone disease and, and surgical management. So th just thanks again, and thanks again to the uh, AUA. Much appreciated. So um, let's start off really, you know, probably irrespective of what your practice environment is, whether you're a resident, whether you're staff, whether you're in private practice, academic practice, everybody sees acute stone events. Yep. And so, so I think it's a really, it's a logical place to sort of kick off, which is uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, the patient who comes to the ED with an acute stone event and some of the, the important salient things that you think about are important for evaluation and, and how you sort of medically triage these patients based upon that information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is probably one of the most common diagnoses that we're going to get consulted for at. Yeah, an emergency department, and you know, really, you know, um, the, the 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 main tenets of you know doing a, a history and a proper exam of the patient, uh, but really, you know, when you're on the phone talking to the to the emergency department physician or whoever's calling you, is really understanding, you know, what's the what's the the history of this patient, clinical condition of this patient, and then also what what labs have been performed or have any labs been performed. So, you know, are we getting that complete uh, blood cell count, looking at their white blood cell count? Do we have a metabolic panel? Do we know what their their kidney function is, their creatinine? And then obviously a urinalysis, if we, if we uh, suspect a stone, 
And then, you know, really from there, uh, if we're thinking about a stone that is either infected or uninfected or a patient's clinical condition that warrants a more infectious workup, um, you know, were they febrile? Were, are they having signs of, of systemic inflammatory response syndrome? Um, those kinds of aspects to start. And then obviously, if they're, if we think it's a stone and we're consulted for a stone, have they obtained imaging? I can't tell you how often we, we've had patients who, oh, I think this patient's having a stone event and, you know, there's no CT imaging. And really the unenhanced, uh, now low dose or, you know, unenhanced with, without contrast CT uh, is really the best imaging uh, choice for, for stone disease. And, and that tells us a lot of in, in information, actually. It'll tell us the location of the stone. It'll tell us if there's hydronephrosis associated with the stone, which can be a sign of obstruction. Um, it'll tell us about urinary stranding or even in some circumstances, extravasation of urine, um, you know, outside of the kidney, really bad obstruction. Um, and so with all that information, then we can start to think about a plan for the patient. You know, is this a patient that has a stone that's, you know, amenable to med med uh, medical expulsive therapy? Is this something that we can run by run by the, uh, the patient and we see them for the consultation? Or is this a patient who we're concerned about, you know, obstructing polynephritis, you know, one of the few kind of urgent or emergent urologic interventions that requires either a nephrostomy tube or a stent um, you know, for this particular patient. So those are kind of the initial things that we start to think about when we're when we're seeing our patient for the first time uh, in that in that ED setting. So just to touch on a few of the the points you brought up, and you really summarized sort of the thought process well. But I'm going to ask you a few practical questions, and um, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. So the first is um, the the I find a lot of times in practice your point is critical, which is imaging, right? I mean, you know, you, you don't know if there's, the story might sound compelling, but unless you have a picture, uh, you don't really know. But one of the things I've noticed is that our ED colleagues often like to use ultrasonography. And, and I think that's a perfectly valid tool that gives you some information with regards to, for example, hydronephrosis. But I find that it often doesn't really give me some of the clues on I don't know, a distal stone and a proximal stone may have two different life cycles, whether they're going to pass, the size of a stone may tell you whether expulsive therapy. So what, what are your thoughts on, on, you know, using imaging modalities like ultrasound, or should we really be looking at these low-dose CTs as our go-to? I, I, would, I would honestly argue that um, the, the, the point-of-care ultrasound is when it's utilized for the right, maybe the right patient, um, you can certainly use some of the information from it, but it, it, you know, the sensitivity for ultrasound with a, with a ureteral stone, it starts to drop off pretty quickly. Um, and, and really what they're looking for is hydronephrosis. And so we all know that hydronephrosis is not really a surrogate for kidney stones. It's a surrogate maybe for obstruction, um, in, in, you know, in the best circumstance, but really the low dose CT uh, you know, in, in the setting when you really think there's an acute stone happening should be performed because it's going to it's going to give you all the information you need um, to know if that patient is going to require surgery. Because um, a, a lot of the times we get an overestimation of stone size with ultrasound. Um, CT is by far more accurate with regards to that. And that's going to really tailor their um, the next step for that patient, whether it's going to be, you know, expulsive therapy or, you know, hey, this is too large that you're not going to pass it. We need to talk about, you know, when are we going to take you back to the OR and get this out for you? Um, um, so, yeah, I, I would say that CT, you know, kind of hands down is going to be the best, the best choice here. 
So sec second sort of practical question is um, the, the, these, these infected obstructed stones. And so you, you highlighted some of the key factors, you know, maybe a dirty urine, elevated white blood cell count, patients febrile, stranding around the kidney. So the, the whole clinical picture is kind of screaming out there's an infection here. And, and there's always this yin and the yang of, do you place a retrograde stent or do you place an integrate nephrostomy too? Do you have any sort of institutional algorithm? Does it, it, it or, or how do you sort of yourself maybe judge what may be the most appropriate modality? Because the goal is just get the patient drained, right? Get the patient drained in the most expeditious manner. Is there an algorithm that you use in this scenario? Yeah, so a lot of my decision is is based off of stone location and stone size, and then and then certain patient characteristics as well. So in patients with, um, you know, good examples are patients who've had uh, obstructed, impacted stones for a long time that have an infection, and and you can tell that on a CT scan because you can see a lot of um, uh, ureteral edema around the stone, um, and there'll be, you know, probably chronic or, or, or very a large amount of hydronephrosis. And in those patients, if we think the success rate of stent placement is going to be low, then we will just go right to eye, uh, interventional radiology, have them placed an antegrade, uh, have them placed in a nephrostomy tube. Um, uh, patients who have a large stone burden, so if this is a, a two centimeter obstructing UPJ stone, probably going to need a, a percutaneous stone removal, you know, let's go ahead and, and, and drain them proximally. Um, and then that will provide potentially an access for a perk. We get our own access um, in Indiana, but certainly that allows um, uh, people to utilize a, a potentially an access for a PCNL. Um, um, you know, the otherwise we will usually place a stent for that for that patient. Um, but those those are kind of the two two scenarios. And then, you know, there's quite a few diversion patients um, with us. So we will you know, routinely um, have IR place nephrostomy tubes, and then instead of retrograde um, uh, ureteral catheters. Um, so those are the main two. And then sort of the third practical question I would ask you is, so let's say you have identified a patient who is uh, who's suitable for medical management. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we're in this era of, you know, obviously minimizing narcotics, right? So do you have a particular cocktail uh, or, or group of medications that you like to use for when we talk about medical management of stone disease? What is Marcelino's Rivera's algorithm for medical management? What do you give? And then when do you see these folks back? Like, how do you know what's your time frame for reevaluating them? Yeah. So uh, with these patients, um, we, we have kind of a, a, a several medications that we use in tandem for multimodal pain control. So um, especially in patients with kind of the, the, the mid to distal ureteral stone, we'll start them with, you know, I mean, obviously this is kind of off-label use, but Flomax. Um, so we do, we'll do Flomax, we'll do uh, Tamsulose, and we'll do Diclofenac uh, sodium uh, three times a day. It's 50 milligrams. We'll um, sometimes utilize some uh, prednisone. Um, so if it's very distal, there's a lot of edema to help with that. Um, and then we'll give them uh, peridium and oxybutynin for their kind of bladder spasms and other bladder symptoms. But um, those are the main principal ones that we use for, you know, your medical expulsive therapy patient. And obviously, a lot of these are PRN. The only one we, we, we say on a daily basis is going to be your, your tamsulosin to help facilitate stone passage. And then when do you typically like to, let's just assume a patient isn't having an adverse outcome where they're coming back to the ED. When do you like to reimage these folks to sort of equivocate whether your medical expulsive therapy actually is working or not working or whether they really just need to go on to some type of procedure? Yeah. So if, if they're doing well, I'll give them four to six weeks. 
Okay. If, if I, if I think that their pain's well managed, they're not struggling with PO hydration or, or any other kind of red flags. Um, I'll give them, you know, I'll, I'll tell them, I'll give you four to six weeks and then we're going to re-image you. Um, depending on, you know, what the, the stone looked like on CT, we could potentially do a KUB or KUB ultrasound or repeat CT, depending on, on, on the patient and, um, and then see if they pass the stones. If they haven't passed it by then, they're not going to pass it. I mean, that's kind of my rule of thumb. So we, we've been talking a little bit broadly about different, different, sort of the approach to the stone patient. I'm going to change gears a little bit and maybe ask you a little bit about some of the tools that we have at our armamentarium to actually treat stones. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we'll, we'll maybe start with uh, perhaps the least invasive uh, of these, shockwave lithotripsy. Yeah. And, um, and, and maybe talk to us a little bit about um, sort of the, the, the science, if you want to call it that, about mm-hmm. how shockwave lithotripsy works, and, and then maybe whom... Uh, whom would be an appropriate candidate for that? Sure. Sure. So, um, you know, shockwave lithotripsy has been around for, gosh, I mean, uh, almost 40 years, uh, I believe. So 1980s, you know, we're talking about the first shockwaves being done in the United States. Um, and, you know, obviously the technology's changed, but the kind of fundamentals of shockwave lithotripsy and, 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 and how they respond to a stone are, are, are now starting to be understood pretty well. Um, so, you know, we, we provide shockwaves at a certain rate, um, and that's typically between 60 to 90, 90 Hertz. Um, and so, um, the shockwave itself has a peak of the, of the shockwave, and then it has a, uh, trough, if you will. And it is the energy that's, um, focused to the stone that actually fragments the stone through a, a variety of, of mechanisms, right? So the stone itself is, um, has, uh, different, um, essentially layers to it. And so the shockwave will actually pass through the stone. It'll reverberate across the stone and create multiple waves that can break the stone apart. It'll create um, uh, cavitary bubbles and essentially uh, break the stone apart that way. And it'll actually fatigue and stress the stone to break it apart with each um, successive shock. Um, and so through you know numerous shocks, the stone then fragments and gets into smaller and smaller pieces. And those pieces are then you know, designed to, you know, be small enough for the patient to pass uh, on their own. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, the, the utility of, of shockwave lithotripsy and utilization of it has changed over the years, right? We used to use it in all kinds of stones way back when, when we first had it, um, when we thought it was kind of the, 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 the newest and best technology. And then we've kind of realized that there are certain patients for maybe, you know, ureteroscopy versus a shockwave or a, piece, a percutaneous stone removal is probably better. And it, you know, in the right patient, it is it is a an extremely good uh, treatment and with very high success rates. And I think in in in, in my criteria for kind of selection of, of patients are ones that we have to look at several things. And I kind of use a rule of t- uh, ten and ten millimeters, ten centimeters, and a thousand hound field units. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like ten, ten, and a thousand. Um, but you're looking for a stone that's in an upper pole or kind of at a, U- a UPJ area that's less than 10 millimeters in, or that's you know, less than 10 millimeters in size. You're looking for a stone that's less than a thousand Hounsfield units. Cause we know that stones greater than 900 to a thousand, those are going to be hard for a shockwave to really handle well and to fragment well. And then we're looking for a skin to stone distance of about 10 centimeters or less, because we know that shockwaves have a hard time traveling through a lot of tissue um, to really be focused on onto the stone and to fragment it. 
fragment it well. So that's those are kind of my my indications for shockwave. Um, and you know, um, in, in those patients, you know, we have very good stone free rates and um, very you know, I, you, you mentioned it right. It is the the least invasive. It is a non-invasive technique to to get patients to be stone free. Um, talk to us a little bit about maybe some unique populations. Are there certain populations of patients that uh, do better, perhaps, with shockwave? And are there some that we should uh, we should be avoiding that we we really don't want to treat with shockwave lithotripsy? Sure. Um, so one group that does quite well with shockwave actually is the pediatric uh, population. Um, they tend to pass, um, be able to pass um, and have shockwave on larger stones and, and pass those stones. Um, and really up to two centimeter uh, stone size is, is actually um, one of the one of the guideline recommendations, uh, an option for patients for pediatric stones. Um, in, in patients who probably we need to think about, you know, looking at other modalities, these are patients who have renal anomalies, you know, horseshoe kidney is a good example. So you know, it's going to be very difficult to pass any stone fragment when you have essentially a UPJ that's near, that's very anterior and a ureter that's coursing uh, very anteriorly. It's much, much harder to pass those stones. Um, obese, you know, patients, they, we have much lower success rates in them. Um, and obviously ectopic, you know, kidneys that are, you know, deep down in the pelvis, um, those are typically malrotated as well. Um, and obviously, you know, we know that uh, pregnancy is, we, we, we can't do shockwave. It's absolutely contraindicated in, in, in pregnant patients as well. So those are, those are good populations that benefit from shockwave and also probably not, um, not the best idea to do doing shockwave in them. <clears throat> And what, for your patients, what, what do you counsel them regarding complications? You know, complications, like what, what, what are the big ones you, you, you sort of talk to them about? What are the rates you might give them as a ballpark? Yeah. And, and are there long-term sequelae, like negative sequelae of shockwave lithotripsy that have kind of played out in any longitudinal, you know, population-based studies? Yeah. So um, probably the most common complication we see in shockwave, besides hematuria, is going to be a uh, perinephric hematoma. Um, and so, you know, that rate is very variable. You know, in some studies, it's as low as, you know, five to 10%. In other studies, it's as high as up to 50% of patients who have some form of hematoma around, around the kidney. So we talk about that. We also talk about the dreaded Steinstrasse. Okay. So, you know, a big street of stones stuck in the ureter. Um, don't play stents. Uh, it, it, we don't play stents for those patients to prevent the Steinstrasse. We just discussed. Um, we just discussed to them, you know, about basically if that occurs, then you're looking at either a stent or a nephroscopy tube to help facilitate, you know, those stones passing. Um, you know, there are there was a lot of research oh, about a decade ago looking at post shockwave hypertension post because the kidney. You know, when we injure the kidney, you would think that there would be some, you know. Um, renal uh, vascular increase in the angiotensin aldosterone uh, 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 system and increase in hypertension that way. Um, some studies uh, came to show that uh, as well as diabetes um, and potentially uh, chronic kidney disease, but these are all pretty um, controversial in terms of um, some studies being in favor for, but other studies not really um, being able to validate those results. Um, so we, we do think that shockwave is, is safe long-term um, in, in, in terms of uh, both um, effect on other visceral organs and to blood pressure. Seems also tough to tease out because a lot of these long-term complications are almost inherent in what you see in stone formers, right? I mean, it's just sort of part, part and parcel of what you see in a and a yep. recurrent stone former. So sometimes I wonder if it's hard to tease out, is this the stone disease 
Yep. Or is this actually effect of the therapy or, or maybe some amalgam of both of those? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. It is hard to tease those out. Absolutely. So let's let's change sort of gears here and let's talk about ureteroscopy. I feel like this has now become uh, the bread and butter, right? This is our workhorse, I think, of how uh, most of us manage stone disease there. So what what is what are sort of your criteria of what is a, a, a reasonable ureteroscopy in general? I mean, I'm sure there's unique situations where pa patients maybe aren't suitable for percutaneous stuff, but just the average general patient, what are your indications for ureteroscopy? Yeah, so I mean, um, so, you know, we, we think about ureteroscopy in, 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 in two different ways, at least I do. So I think about renal stones, and I think about ureteral stones, and I kind of, I kind of separate them. And then we, you know, really kind of look at the total stone burden. So, you know, for these patients that have this, you know, seven, eight millimeter, you know, uh, single stone in the ureter or in the kidney, um, they're going to be great candidates for a lot of different therapies. Uh, and your ureteroscopy is going to have very high, very high rates of, of stone free rates. As we get above a centimeter, in particular in the lower pole, that gets a little trickier. Now we do have very good, you know, um, flexible ureteroscopes nowadays. We can get into those lower pole calyces. Um, sometimes we're able to move the stone up into the upper pole and, and fragment it and extract it. Um, but um, as we get above a, a centimeter in the lower pole, we're starting to think about other ways to treat that stone. Um, and then really, if it's just in the pelvis or in the upper pole, um, you know, really up to two centimeters is pretty reasonable to go ahead and, and, and treat uh, ureteroscopically. Um, now, you know, I tend to do a lot of uh, fragmentation and basket extraction. So when you get a large, a large stone like that, you're, pat you're going up and down the ureter, you know, 50, 60, sometimes 100 times to get those stones out. Um, but, you know, the stone free rates are, are, are quite good in terms of, you know, uh, fragments that are less than four millimeters. And, um, you know, patients do quite well with the procedure. It's, you know, minimally invasive, you know, right? No incisions, not quite shockwave, but uh, not quite a perk. Um, but yeah, that's a good kind of rule of thumb is, you know, that that one centimeter in the lower pole and then, you know, two centimeters or so total stone burden in the rest of the kidney um, for your, your redoscope patients. And then I, I'm sure, as, as I sort of alluded to, there are probably some of these unique, you know, patients who have, you know, it's prohibitive, for example, to stop their blood thinners, right? Yeah. Or those that you would just say, they, these folks have larger stones, but the safest thing to do on them is yeah. something with direct visualization where maybe you're not coming through the renal parenchyma. So I'm sure you must have sort of a population of such patients. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, patients that obviously they can't stop anticoagulant, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, so, you know, patients that have to be on anticoagulants, uh, certainly ureteroscopy is, is much safer for them. There is, there is some bleeding associated with ureteroscopy, but nowhere near that of, of percutaneous stone removal. Um, you know, these, uh, anomaly, these anatomic anomaly uh, kidneys are, are also a good option for ureteroscopy. These are kind of more complex in terms of getting the collecting system percutaneously. Um, you know, those are, those are some good, good, you know, patients to really uh, uh, focus on with, you know, minimally invasive, you know, the ureteroscopy. And, and so practical question for you is, you know, obviously we have semi-rigid and we have flexible ureteroscopes. Yep. Uh, what, what's sort of your no-go point of using the, the semi-rigid? At what point do you say, you know, something, this is a flexible ureteroscopy case? Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'll talk with our residents and I'll, I'll kind of tell them, you know, how do you want to approach this stone? It'll be a mid ureteral stone, you know, and, and, and they'll be like, and I'll tell them what, what landmark do you use? And they're like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what, you know, what, what are we looking for? And, and, you know, they're always like looking at the pelvic vessels and I'm like, do you see how the ureter kind of goes up a uh, slightly 
there, that's going to be pretty tricky to get beyond with a rigid scope. And, you know, that is, you know, my typical demarcation point is if it's above the vessels, the iliac vessels, we can use a short axis sheath or, or we can use just a flexible scope to get up there much, much more easily than with a rigid scope. And you just have, uh, I think, you know, now the optics are so good, better optics to see the stone and to fragment the stone and then, you know, obviously get that stone out. So, um, yeah, I use the iliac vessels as my no, as my no-go zone for the up above them, uh, proximal to them. If you're going to do a flexible distal to them, we'll do rigid. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot now and go to to percutaneous nephrolithotomy and you know just from our conversation thus far it's you know these are obviously the stones that are larger probably more complex I'm gonna ask you a few questions just in your practice on how you incorporate some of the these different tools within PCNL that we see so the first question is really gonna be you, you mentioned you get your own access and and you know we're in an era where we're trying to cut down on radiation exposure to the patient and to the operator you know the you basically yep. so is, do you use ultrasound do you use fluoroscopy do you use other modalities to get access in the kidney for the pcnl procedures yeah so um traditionally i i used almost exclusively for fluoroscopy we are now going to more uh more ultrasound guidance for sure uh with that in mind i mean reducing radiation exposure to everyone is, is always better um so if the patient's, you know, BMI, if there's a smaller patient, less than 30 BMI, we will try to do uh, ultrasound guided access uh, for larger patients. If we're not, if we're having a hard time visualizing the kidney with the ultrasound, then we'll go to, to fluoroscopic guided access. And there are ways to reduce um, radiation exposure when you're using fluoroscopy. I mean, we always do, you can do, um, you know, essentially we do what's called a low dose protocol. And then we also do a pulse protocol. So instead of, instead of being a continuous fluoroscopy, it's pulsing every second or every two seconds or so. Um, and that really reduces total, total radiation exposure to everyone. Um, and you know, those are, you know, those are definitely ways that we can reduce, um, radiation exposure to our staff, our residents, ourselves, and the patient as well. So second question for you is, um, Talk to us a little bit about the size of the tract that you gain, right? So there's, uh, at least when I was training, we, we used to use a 30 French access sheath for all the cases, always 30 French access sheath. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, we've got, you know, mini, uh, maybe there's even ultra mini. Um, and, and when do you use these? I mean, you can, I guess you can go as small as you want, but your tools get smaller that you can use through these sheets. So when do you use them? What do you use most commonly? What's the, what are the pros and cons of some of this? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the area I think of, of percutaneous stone removal that's changed the most besides laser technology, I think is the size of our tract, right? So we've gone from traditional 30 French. Um, and, you know, we use these terms, you know, uh, like standard PCNL, which would, would you know, encompass 24 French to 30 French axis sheet size. Um, a mini per, a percutaneous mini PCNL is going to be anywhere between, um, you know, really kind of the 14 French to 21, 22 French uh, sheet size. We have the ultra mini, which is really maybe 11 French to 13 French. And then we're getting down to micro and, you know, there is a lot of other terminology used, but for the most part, that's pretty standardized. Those three, um, you know, the for for very large stones, you know, staghorn, partial staghorn, um, we're going to use either a standard 30 French or 24 French balloon almost always. Um, 
I tend to do quite a few uh, mini procedures as well. Um, and one of the reasons I like to, to do mini PCNL is there is uh, less bleeding in the literature. Um, and we find that patients have a little bit less pain as well. Um, the, for those cases, I'll, I'll do up to two, um, over two centimeters, but really less than, you know, three to four centimeters in terms of stone burden. Um, it's great for a lower pole, one to two centimeter stone. It's like, it's, you know, almost perfect for that. The ultra mini will, will utilize for kind of complex, um, anatomy. So calicial dive, you know, diverticulum or uh, isolated calyx or really narrow infundibulum that can't get uh, ureteroscope in. We'll use the ultra mini, um, cause that is, you know, you're really stuck when you have, uh, when you're utilizing a mini or ultra mini set to your kind of lithotripsy. So there are probes that can fit through a mini scope, but there are no, um, uh, lithotripsy probes that can fit through an ultra mini. So then you're talking about just lasering a stone. So, um, you know, that's, that's my typical kind of protocol for, you know, the standard versus the mini versus the ultra mini PCNL. And so, and then sort of, I'll, I'll now ask you on the, the end of the procedure. So now you've finished, um, what is your sort of thought process on uh, drainage tube, no drain of the drain, you know, drainless PCNL or tubeless PCNL versus drainage tube, is it predicated on your 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 suspicion of needing to do a second look? I mean, how, how do you sort of navigate that? You get a CT right afterwards, uh, or or how, how do you sort of navigate that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So we we typically um, utilize a, a tubeless procedure um, with 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 our perks. So we usually place a stent antegrade, or sometimes we'll place a retrograde. If we if you know we have a full stag and we know we're going to be doing a secondary procedure, we leave a nephrostomy tube um, and make sure that you know we're uh, we're you know ready to get it you know, get into access again and, and get the rest of the stones out. Um, my my CT protocol is is pretty straightforward. So um, if the patient stays overnight, they get a CT scan uh, post op day one, looking for any residual fragments, and then we're doing a secondary for any significant fragment, um, usually, usually ureteroscopy in that circumstance. Um, uh, if they go home the same day, then we're going to get a CT scan before we remove our stent, uh, or nephrostomy tube, uh, to ensure that there's no stones in the ureter and ensure that we're happy with stone free status in that patient. So, um, one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago was, um, that, that laser technology has evolved a great deal. And, um, you know, what I feel like I'm seeing more and more of, and I don't know very much about it, is, is a lot more on the thulium laser. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, the, the homium laser um, and, and maybe some of the nuances of dusting versus fragmentation. And then the thulium laser and, and what scenarios do you use one or the other and what's the difference? Sure, sure. So. You know, um, the, the homium laser is kind of the, it's the workhorse in, in, in urology and endourology and has been for, for a long, long time. Um, you know, it's, it, it is essentially um, a uh, 2100 nanometer kind of flexible quartz uh, laser fiber that then emits the um, light energy um, from the uh, laser. Um, and we've, we've actually now have high powered enough lasers that we can have, uh, rates of fragmentation up to 120, up to 120 Hertz. Um, so that's very, very high fragmentation rates. Um, and you know, we have such technology now that we can change the, the length of the pulse, uh, of, of what's going uh, out the laser fiber, and we can actually modulate the pulse so we can create 
you know, multiple um, essentially fragmentation bubbles going through the laser uh, uh, fiber to the stone, which improves um, uh, efficiency of fragmentation. Um, so that that has led to this um, uh, idea of can we fragment a stone into a fine powder or dust, so to speak. Um, and so in certain stones, softer stones, you know, your, your calcium oxalate dihydrate stones, your calcium phosphate stones, those are, are pretty amenable to dusting into very, very small, almost powder-like material. Um, and when we talk about, you know, what pulse rate, what, you know, what energy are we talking about utilizing in, in, in these patients, we really are talking about, you know, 0.4 to point maybe 0.2 to 0.4 to 0.6 joules at kind of the highest and then rates you know quite high rates up to you know 80 hertz or uh, 120 hertz in the in the kidney this is we're talking about renal stone removal now in the ureter we're not going to get anywhere close to there you know we're going to try and stay below 10 watts of total power in the ureter at all times um you know, the uh, contrast with that is the thulium fiber laser. And the reason why we are limited with our, with our, with our pulse rate uh, and pulse and pulse duration with the homium YAG laser has to deal with the differences between the two, the two lasers, uh, the two actual mechanics behind the lasers. So the thulium fiber laser is what we call a diode laser. Okay. It's very different than what the homium YAG laser is, which is a flash lamp laser. Okay. Um, and when we think about, you know, kind of lasers in general, and how they work. The homium YAG laser is kind of the traditional, the traditional laser. The thulium fiber laser is different in that it's far more efficient. It's far more cooler. So it runs at a cooler temperature. So instead of needing, you know, a 30 to 50 amp outlet to run it, you can use it through a standard 120 volt outlet. Hmm. Um, and really the energy coming through it, you can vary, you can, um, you can vary your pulse rate and pulse duration significantly to where you, you have pulse rates um, with certain lasers up to 2000 Hertz. So I was talking about 120 Hertz. Now we have a laser that can go up to 2000 Hertz. And we think that the, the, you know, the more Hertz you have, or the, the kind of the duration of your pulse and the rapidity of the pulse helps to control stone movement and helps to better finally dust the stone. So, that is where I think we see the, the kind of emergence of the thulium fiber laser because, you know, in essence, the stone is almost steady state when you're laser, when you're fragmenting it and doesn't move and it can, you know, form a very fine, very fine powder. And, and what, what do you use in your practice? Do you, do you use both lasers? Do you use the, I mean, uh, how, how do you decide for yourself, given those differences, what you actually use and what, what's actually occurring out in maybe the broader community? Yeah. So I, I, I think that, um, in my practice, we have, we actually have both lasers available at my institution. And, um, I traditionally use the homium YAG laser because, um, I actually like a little bit of movement on my stone. I feel like sometimes when you have a stone behind a corner or when you need a fragment, you want it to move a little bit. Um, I think it fragments a little bit differently with the thulium la uh, laser. I'll utilize that in the ureter, um, quite a bit. Um, I think it helps a lot. And, and, um, you know, if you want to do a dusting uh, kind of technique in the ureter, that allows you to do that. Um, and, you know, I think in the community, uh, I, I, I do see the emergence of the thulium fiber laser more and more in the community. I still think, though, that, you know, the homium, you know, laser is um, is still kind of the, you know, the number one in terms of, you know, being utilized the most. Uh, but I think the thulium fiber does does show some promise uh, with uh, with fragmentation and dusting. Great. Well, Marcelino, I really want to I want to thank you uh, very much just for your thoughtfulness. It was really uh, 
very informative. I feel like we sort of spanned a number of different areas, but, but I, I think a lot of really practical advice and practical uh, practice, uh, uh, practice styles that, that our audience can take back uh, into their own individual uh, setting. So Marcelino, again, on a Friday afternoon, really thank you so much for joining. I, I really appreciate the time. It's, it's really been a pleasure. And just, you know, thanks again for having me, Dr. Raman. I really appreciate it. Uh, to our audience, thank you very much. And uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Marcelino, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks.